Darkness settles like a heavy blanket over the village. The silence of the night is broken only by the occasional chirp of a cricket or the distant call of wildlife. The livestock, though, shift uneasily in their crawls. They can sense a predator in their midst. He stalks through the night between the homes of the sleeping villagers, deciding where he's going to stop next. This is True Crime South Africa. I'm Nicole Engelbrecht, and you're listening to episode 129, The Serial Crimes of Bulelani Mabai. Now it's time for my tip about the latest series to watch on CBS Justice, the home of true crime on TV. And from Saturday, the 16th of September, you can catch the premiere of Fatal Frontier, Murder in Alaska. Investigating homicide cases is hard, but investigating homicide cases in the remote U.S. state of Alaska is even harder. This series explores the darkness that lurks within America's last frontier, where isolation, extreme weather, challenging terrain, and other unique factors make for cases that can be incredibly difficult to crack. These are the stories of investigators who succeeded despite the odds. You can watch Fatal Frontier, Murder in Alaska, Weekly from Saturday the 16th of September at 8pm, exclusively on DSTV Channel 170 and Starsat 222. And a huge thank you to CBS Justice for sponsoring this episode of True Crime South Africa. Since 2019, True Crime South Africa has been telling the stories of the victims of violent crime in South Africa. The podcast is independent. That means... No big or even little corporates fund it, and that's just the way I like it. And it's the only independent podcast in South Africa that consistently charts in the top 10. Keeping a podcast like this going is time-consuming, and for the most part, it remains a one-woman process. It's me. I'm the one woman. You? Yes, you are the reason this podcast continues to flourish and help bring in tips on missing person and cold cases. If you'd like to help keep the show running, please consider supporting our sponsors, signing up to Patreon or PayPal, follow the show on the socials, as the kids say, and share it with your fellow partners in crime. You can find our social links and learn more about our sponsors at True Crime South Africa forward slash donate. Shout out to this week's Patreon and PayPal superstars. A huge thank you goes out to Joyful Mbukazi and Laura Barkley for your support on Patreon. Thank you so much, everyone. Patreon supporters get one additional exclusive episode a month, a shout out on the pod, and other exclusive contents, including Q&As with me as and when it's available. It's a minimum of $1 a month. I think you should do it. Please. And thank you. Keba. Today's case has been requested quite a few times over the years. 
It's a serial murder case. And yes, the offender was given a moniker. But you know by now I don't use those. They are very helpful in SEO terms because generally people don't search for the offender's name. They'll search for the moniker they were known by in the media. But I'm okay with not coming up in searches if that means there's one less person giving fancy nicknames to perpetrators. I'm also pleased to say that this is one of the very few serial murder cases I've covered where all of the victims are identified, and I was able to find all of their names. That is sadly uncommon. But the reason that all the victims are known is as a result of a particularly tragic element of this case, in that all but one of the victims were killed in the same rural village in the Eastern Cape, and they were almost all killed in their homes. Devastatingly, there are also multiple victims from the same families. I must warn you that there are some extremely gruesome scenes in this episode, and it also involves the murder and sexual assault of young children. In researching this case, I used multiple research articles as well as some media articles. So let's get into episode 129, The Serial Crimes of Bulelani Mabai. The following episode may contain sensitive material including descriptions of violence, sexual assault or graphic descriptions of injuries to victims. If you feel you may be triggered by such material, please consider this before accessing our content. To access trauma counseling or services, please see the helpline information on our show notes. The Eastern Cape is one of South Africa's most beautiful provinces. It's the country's second largest province and is quite diverse from a landscape perspective. The west of the province is mostly semi-arid Karoo, except in the far south where there's temperate rainforest in the Tsitsikama region. The Eastern Cape coastline is generally rugged with interspersed beaches. But most of the province is hilly to very mountainous. The east, from East London and Queenstown toward the KwaZulu-Natal border, a region known previously as Transkai, is made up of grassy hills with deep gorges and forests in between. And it's this latter area in a rural village called Toleni, just outside Butterworth, that today's case would play out. The people of Toleni at this point in time were either for the most part unemployed or lived a subsistence lifestyle off the land. Many still farmed with small herds of livestock, while others travelled for a few days at a time into nearby towns to pick up odd jobs and then return to the village. As is the case with many South African families, it's necessary for one or both parents to live in other provinces to be able to work, and often younger children will live with their grandparents or one of their parents or another family member in the villages until they're ready to go to school. Toleni is rural and doesn't have much in the way of services. In 2007, its closest police station was 30 kilometres away, and at night the village fell into complete darkness. The dim lights glowing from the houses in the village were nowhere near bright enough to light up the large expanse of land that surrounded them. 
There's probably nowhere in the world that's exempt from violence and crime. But Tolani had, until 2007 at least, been able to deal with any transgressions and maintain law and order with only the occasional need to call police. There had been violent crimes in its history, mostly intimate partner violence incidents, which had turned deadly, but they'd never, ever seen, or even in their worst nightmares imagined, the scale of violence that was headed their way, starting in 2007. On the 11th of May 2007, Nofinish Eslina Mayakiso's son was waiting for his mother to visit him at home. When the hours ticked by and the 79-year-old woman had not arrived, he walked over to her house to see if she was okay. The man likely thought his mom could have fallen or become ill overnight, but what he found in her neat home was beyond his wildest nightmares. The inside of the house was like a scene from a horror movie. Nolfinish lay on her bed. The entire room was splattered in blood. An autopsy would later reveal that she'd been attacked with an axe. The woman had undoubtedly died in the attack, but blood spatter evidence would show that her attacker had left the house after the initial attack and then returned, inflicting additional wounds and raping her post-mortem. The village was in a state of shock. Everyone's immediate assumption was that an outsider had come into their village and committed this heinous crime. Because of the rural nature of the landscape, there was very little evidence to work with. No CCTV, no witnesses, no electronics to provide a clue. Whomever had murdered Nofinish had broken into her home while she was asleep. Her time of death was estimated at around midnight. Those closest to her had alibis, and although her neighbours gladly opened their homes up for inspection, no blood or weapons were found in the surrounding houses. Nofinish's murder went cold. By January 2008, Toleni had started to recover from the horror of, of Nofinish Mayakiso's murder. Life had slowly moved on, although the perpetrator of her murder had never been found. Then, on the 13th of January 2008, Nolundu Monakali woke up to find a man standing in her dark bedroom. She struggled briefly, but she was quickly overpowered and raped. Her body would be found the next morning by neighbours who'd noticed her door standing open and thought it was odd. She had been attacked with an axe. Again, there were very few clues for police to follow. The similarity to Nofinish's murder could not be denied, but most murders committed in rural areas will be committed with weapons available to the people there, and an axe is something almost everyone would have had for chopping firewood. Toleni mourned its lost villagers and hoped that this was not the start of a trend. Still, though, they were convinced that the culprits had to be an outsider. After Nolundi's murder, Tuleni would be given a full year to recover, and in some ways put their fears to rest. 
that another horrific tragedy was about to be visited upon them, and it would be one that no one could wrap their minds around. In January 2009, Nchediwe Mafika was asleep in her home in Toleni with her two children, Zitle and Lazola, when a man broke in and murdered all three. Nchediwe's husband worked in another province, and she rarely had visitors, so it would be some time before their bodies were discovered. It was difficult to determine exactly when they'd been killed, but an autopsy would determine that a bladed weapon, likely an axe, had been used to kill the family. The murder of the children, especially in such a violent manner, horrified villagers. And it was at this point that the people of Tuleni understood that the previous two murders and these killings were just the start of some terrible spree that had been visited upon them. Sporadic news reports would appear about the murders that had occurred thus far, especially the Mafika family murder. And although the word serial killer had yet to be uttered, there would soon be no doubt that these crimes were linked. As we know, there's always a point or multiple points of escalation in the timeline of a series of murders, and this would be the first such point. Just a few days after the Mafika family was discovered deceased, on the 20th of January 2009, the killer broke into the home of Nokwezi Elizabeth Nogaya. He raped and murdered Nokwezi and her six-year-old daughter, Sipudnolo. Nokwezi's 14-year-old son was severely injured and witnessed the horror, but thankfully survived. The young boy was not able to provide a description of the man who'd killed his mother and sister, though. This would be a turning point for the village of Toleni. Many women and children chose not to sleep in their homes anymore. Some preferred to sleep in kraals with livestock, where they hoped the killer wouldn't find them. Other women-headed households teamed up, taking turns standing guard while others slept. Still, the villagers were sure that the killer was an outsider. One resident told a journalist that the perpetrator was clearly spying on the village and knew that they didn't have a police station close by, and also knew which homes didn't have men in them. The villagers raised an important point, too. Nothing was ever stolen during these attacks. Valuables were left behind, and the motive seemed to be purely violence and bloodshed. As the murders began to be reported on as a possible series in newspapers, Toleni soon gained the ominous nickname of the Village of Death. Deeply traditional residents believed that a curse must have been set upon them, but they felt entirely powerless to protect themselves. As the perpetrator was clearly a man, women began to fear any man in their vicinity. It was not just the terror that villagers had to contend with, but also the suspicion and second-guessing of whom the killer might be. Villagers had also noticed that the killer seemed to always strike around midnight, and usually on windy nights, presumably because the screams of his victims would less likely be heard. 
Every time the wind picked up, the levels of fear in Toleni rose. Police did not publicly say that they thought the murders were linked at this time, but it would be later revealed that the suspicion in that vein was already growing among investigators. Unfortunately, any efforts that they were making at that time would not prevent yet another murder. On the 12th of September 2009, Noncheba Nguenya was raped and murdered in her home. The woman was found hacked to death in her bed by her neighbours. Residents by now had become well-versed in crime scene protection and knew exactly how to determine if a victim was dead and then retreat from the scene and protect it until police arrived. Forensics teams had managed to obtain DNA from rape kits performed on several of the victims, and comparing those samples to one another confirmed that they were indeed dealing with the same perpetrator. Although they would do their best to keep that information private, perhaps so as not to increase the levels of fear, if that was even possible, the villagers knew. Everyone knew that a serial killer was stalking Toleni. Police presence was increased for a time in the area, and over Christmas and the new year heading into 2010, the village was given a reprieve, and residents settled into an uneasy rhythm. But the peace was not to last. On the 8th of April 2010, one of the most horrific crimes in this series was committed. Nozuko Klazo was a grandmother living in Toleni who was the primary caregiver for her two grandchildren, Endinako Mbidiani and 10-year-old Zimim Klazo. The children's parents, Nozuko's daughters, were working in the city and had left their children in the care of their mother. On the night of the 8th of April, villagers awoke to a blaze at Nozuko's home. The house was almost completely destroyed by the time neighbours were able to extinguish the fire and all three residents were deceased. Police and autopsy reports would confirm, though, that this was no tragic accident. Although the victims' bodies were badly burned, hack wounds from an axe were visible on their bodies. It was the first time that the killer had used fire and one has to ask whether he'd perhaps started to realise that police were getting DNA evidence from the scenes and the fire was his way of destroying that evidence. Now, seemingly emboldened, the killer struck again just a few days later, murdering Nompeliso Gomba and raping and murdering her daughter Siam Tanda. Unfortunately, even once police identify a series politics and red tape mean that it can take some time for a task force to be assembled. But with the people of Tuleni being picked off just days after each other, the SAPS finally took major action. In May 2010, a huge convoy of, of police vehicles arrived in the village. Officers explained to the village head that they were going to be taking DNA samples from all of the males in the area over the age of 16. Residents were not forced to participate, of course, but refusing to would not look good. The men of the village queued up, 
seemingly eager to put an end to the horror that was being visited upon the women and children. Although a vast number of samples were taken that day, in some cases samples were not taken because residents did not have identification documents. This is as a result of the deep poverty that many of the residents lived in, and also the fact that they simply did not have access to the resources to obtain identity documents. It put a huge spoke in the wheel of the investigation, though, because in amongst the men who walked away without their DNA being taken could well have been the killer. I must say that this doesn't really make a lot of sense to me. I understand that you need to have some form of tracking for a DNA sample, but surely a workaround could have been found. Photographs and fingerprints of the undocumented individuals could have been taken, and their DNA samples could have been tied to that. Now, there may have been some DNA protocol policy that I'm not aware of that resulted in these men being sent away, but it would be hugely problematic, not just for the investigation, but because it ended up emboldening the killer. You see, the man responsible for the horrific series was in the group of men that was turned away from the DNA sampling station that day. And now, he likely felt even more untouchable than before. Less than two weeks after the DNA operation was undertaken in Toleni, another devastating scene was discovered. Sinazo Pamela Mbeki was sleeping in the same room as her grandchildren, six-year-old Ungama and 18-month-old Kazimla, when all three were attacked with an axe and murdered. The perpetrator, perhaps so practiced now, moved so quickly that he was able to kill all three without alerting other family members who were sleeping in the room just next door. The family members awoke the next morning to an absolute bloodbath, and the horrific scene of the youngest victim the killer had claimed thus far having been brutally murdered. These murders would finally force the SAPS to publicly admit that they did have a serial killer on their hands, and one of the most experienced investigators in the area, Captain Aaron Hanisa, was put in charge of the investigation. The investigator psychology unit of the SAPS provided input, and a 250,000 rand reward was issued for any information that led to the arrest and conviction of the serial killer. Although many serial offenders escalate their activities when police interest becomes intense, seemingly reveling in the idea that they can commit crimes underneath the noses of police and get away with it, and very likely also enjoying, to a degree, the news coverage of their crimes, this offender reacted differently. After the announcement was made that police were searching for a serial killer and the reward was offered for information, the serial murderer went dormant for more than a year. In 2012, another two murders that had taken place in Toleni in 2009, unrelated to the series, were solved and the offender was convicted. The victims, a 70-year-old grandmother and her 12-year-old granddaughter, 
had also been raped and murdered with an axe in their home during the night. It's understandable that these murders may have been suspected to have been part of the larger series, as the victim profile is the same as was the weapon used. But this offender was captured as a result of DNA he left behind, which did not match the samples from the other scenes. There was also a tie between these victims and the offender arrested, as police believed they'd been killed because they'd witnessed a rape, which this offender and another man had committed. I do want you to keep this conviction in mind, though, because it does have a very interesting link to the offender who would eventually be arrested for the series in question here, but we'll get into that a little later. In May 2012, the killer who'd been terrorising Toleni for five years struck again after a significant period of dormancy. It had been just long enough for the single women and those with children to believe it was safe to sleep in their homes again. For Normandla Nguyelwa, that would be a fatal assumption. Her home was broken into around midnight on a particularly windy evening and she was raped and murdered. Tragically, on that evening, the killer would take the life of an even younger victim than he had in the past. Normandla's two grandchildren, 13-year-old Lucanio and 15-month-old Liema, were also in the house, and they were not spared. Police were starting to look like they were being taken for fools. Despite the difficulties that investigating a case in such a rural setting brought, it also had to have some advantages, in that their suspect pool would be limited. Not many people in the area had their own transportation. The killer had to be on foot, and he had to be living among his victims. Unfortunately, it would take a pretty big mistake on the killer's part, and yet another murder, for police to finally, and almost coincidentally, arrest the serial murderer they sought. On the 11th of August 2012, Lopumzile Lubambo was asleep in her home when a man broke in and murdered her. There appeared to have been more of a struggle at this scene than at the others because the offender had left something behind, a shoe. The piece of evidence was bagged and Captain Hanise hoped that they might be able to somehow use the shoe to find their offender. This would happen sooner than he thought. The next day, police were back in Toleni for a different case. They were searching for a very specific person who had a history of violence and who they hoped to interview about a case that had occurred a few villages over. The man, Siabonga Mabayi, was on parole. He'd been sentenced in his youth for murder and had recently been granted parole. Police knew he had family in Toleni and hoped to ascertain his whereabouts. When they arrived at the village, they asked around for the Mabai family and were told that the only one living there currently was Bulelani Mabai, Siabonga's younger brother. They were directed to the home he was staying in and upon entering, found Bulalani sleeping on a mattress. 
One of the officers on the scene that day had also been at the murder scene the day before. And the minute he saw Bulelani sleeping with one shoe on, he immediately realized he'd seen that shoe before. The man who had terrorized the village for five years, viciously killing so many people, had just been discovered thanks to a single shoe. 39-year-old Bulelani Mabai was arrested on the same day and taken into custody. A DNA comparison soon confirmed that he was indeed the man they'd sought for so long. Mabai seemed eager to confess. In fact, he would lead police to a 20th victim they hadn't even known about. It emerged that during one of the periods he'd appeared to have been dormant, Mabai had broken from his pattern and murdered a young woman from a neighbouring village. He'd been walking through the village and decided on the spur of the moment to abduct, rape and murder Tobeka Mberawa. He showed police where to find her remains. If the villagers had been horrified at having had a serial killer hunting them, they would perhaps be even more so when they learned the identity of the man they'd been running from. Rather than a faceless, nameless outsider who'd spied on the village from the shadows and entered and exited under the veil of darkness, their nightmare actually had a face they knew very well. A man they'd eaten with, sheltered with, and built their lives alongside was the monster they'd never seen coming. Bulalani Mbai had grown up near Toleni and had come to live there as a child. His mother had passed away when he was just 12 years old and his father died a year later. As an orphan, Mbai had relied on his older siblings for support and then he'd fallen into a life of crime. He was arrested in his early 20s for selling dacha and spent three years in Polsmoor. Bulalani had become a trusted member of the Toleni community over the years. He'd learned some carpentry and DIY skills and put those to use in the community, charging villagers fair prices for the jobs he did for them. He did receive the nickname Dlaedwa, though, which means he who eats alone, because as much as his neighbours tried to bring him into their activities, and make him feel like part of the community, the man seemed to prefer to be on his own. During village celebrations, he would stand on the outskirts of festivities, watching but never taking part. Every villager who knew him said he'd always come across as a very gentle and quiet man. He'd done work for many of the women-led households in the village, None of those women had ever said they'd felt uneasy around him. Bulalani had lived with the local family for a while when he was doing repairs to his own home, and the woman in that house told a reporter that although she felt a bit sad that the man had always wanted to be on his own, she decided to leave him to his own devices as he'd never bothered her or anyone in her family. After discovering she'd had a serial killer living in her house for more than a year, she was understandably horrified and started thinking back to try and see if she'd missed any signs. 
The only odd event she could recall was that one very windy night, a large tree branch had fallen onto the roof of their house, frightening all the residents. When they'd been discussing it the next morning, though, Pulalani had had no idea what she was talking about. That event had occurred around the same time as one of the murders. She wondered if perhaps the man hadn't heard the branch falling because he hadn't even been in the house. Perhaps he'd been out, killing. Although Bulalani had confessed, it's very common for serial killers to retract their confessions, so the police still had to ensure they had a rock-solid case against him. He agreed to point out the scenes at which the crimes had occurred. Pointings out are extremely difficult procedures as it is, but this was going to be even more so, because they would have to walk Bulalani through the village while all the residents were there. Police had no idea how the residents would react to his presence, so they did their best to prepare them in advance and ask that they allow the police to do their job and not interfere so that justice could be done for the victims. On the day of the pointings out, a large contingent of officers attended to ensure that they could break up any violence that may erupt. An eerie scene played out as the self-confessed killer walked slowly through Toleni, surrounded by officers in riot gear. Trailing the front group was a large crowd of Toleni residents. Most were completely quiet, with just the occasional murmur of chatter. Every now and then, when the group paused in front of the house of a murdered woman or family, a wail could be heard from somewhere in the crowd as Bulalani's bony finger slowly raised and pointed to the now abandoned home. Sobs would follow, which would eventually ebb away, or the person whose loved one had lived there would simply flee the procession no longer able to take the wave of horrific memories. In addition to his confession, the pointings out and the shoe evidence, police also had DNA matches for many of the crimes. In preparation for the trial, Bulalani would undergo a psychiatric assessment, which is pretty standard in cases that have a psychological element. His first psychiatric assessment came back as inconclusive. The experts on the panel could not agree whether the man was indeed fit to stand trial. Bulalani, though, agreed that he would undergo a second assessment, and this one found him competent to stand trial and also did not identify any specific mental illnesses that may have contributed to his crimes. Although the nature of the case meant that this would undoubtedly be a high court matter, the closest high court to Toleni was in Mtata, which is almost two hours' drive from Toleni. There was no way that the victims' families would be able to afford to travel all that way to attend the court sessions, so it was decided that the magistrate's court in Butterworth would be granted temporary high court designation to allow for the trial to be conducted there so that the victims' families could be accommodated. After some delays to allow for this change, as well as the assessments, the trial eventually began on the 27th of August 2013. News reports on that day 
recount how there had been much hushed discussion among the defence and state prosecutors, and rumours began to swirl that a plea deal was in motion. The highly emotive atmosphere was only made increasingly so by the presence of a huge number of armed officers in the courtroom. This was not standard, and it was also not because they believed Bulalani was a threat for escape, but rather because there were quite a few local politicians who were attending the trial, and there was a concern about their safety because of the large number of people present in court. This really does annoy me a bit, because it might have been nice if the people of Tuleni had been shown the same regard when for five years they were being slaughtered in their sleep. But I guess they weren't politically connected enough. On the 28th of August 2013, Bulalani Mabai's charges were read to him. The 20 murder charges, nine counts of housebreaking and six counts of rape, and the details surrounding each charge took 15 minutes to read out in English and then another 15 minutes to repeat through the Isikosa interpreter. While the charges were read out, Bulalani stood motionless, looking at the ground. Every now and then, he would look up and frown, as though confused or trying to remember something. Perhaps his victims were far too many in number for even him to recall each one by name, despite having known these people for most of his life. When asked to plead, Bulalani shocked all present by softly admitting his guilt on each count. Thirty-five times in a row, he said in a barely audible voice, Ndinyatyala. The interpreter then repeated thirty-five times the translation, I am guilty. As had been the case when the pointings out were made in the village, whenever the name of a victim was mentioned in a charge, and there was someone in attendance who'd had a close connection with that person, an uncontrolled sob rose up from the crowd. Although some were able to quickly stifle their emotions, others, like the young woman who had lost three family members, including her own infant child, to Bulalani's viciousness, were overwhelmed and had to be escorted from the courtroom. On these occasions, Bulalani seemed to have no reaction at all to the devastation he'd caused. The pleas were followed by a plea statement read out by Mabaya's defence attorney. The statement detailed each and every murder. He confirmed that he had purposefully targeted single women or women living with their children or grandchildren and no male in the house. He also confirmed that he'd waited for midnight to strike and would choose the windiest nights, if he could, as any noise would be carried away on the wind. He confirmed that he knew all of his victims and they'd all recognised him. This, he claimed, is why he chose to kill the children, because he was concerned that they would identify him. The prosecutor would counter that this was a poor explanation because he'd killed some children who were barely over a year old and could hardly speak. They could never have identified him. 
Mabai would occasionally claim that he'd been filled with an evil spirit when he'd committed his crimes, and this is why he'd raped elderly women and even young children. Mabai was asked whether he felt he could still add value to society, and the man initially said he could, because he'd learned from his mistakes. The prosecutor then asked whether Mabai would agree that if he hadn't been arrested, he would still be raping and killing people, and he responded by saying, that is correct. Mabai apologised to his victims, their families, and the people of South Africa for what he'd done. In the very next breath, when asked by the prosecutor if he would agree that he was the kind of person who had no respect for human life, Mabai agreed that the statement was correct. In the sentencing portion of the trial, many of the victim's family members took the stand to express how they'd been impacted by Mabai's crimes. A community spokesperson from Toleni was asked whether they accepted the man's apology. The woman said, quote, We will never forgive him. What he did was very terrible. We won't accept his apology. I speak for all residents, and if anyone is willing to testify, they will confirm that. We are still angry with him. End quote. During the height of the murders, a community shelter had been set up where women and children could come to sleep at night if they were afraid to be at home alone. It would emerge during this portion of the trial that the centre was just metres from Bulelani Mabai's home. Mabai's defence attorney asked the court to keep in mind that the man had had a very difficult childhood and that he'd never committed any violent offences before. The attorney also attempted to claim that Mabai's lifelong dacha use had contributed to his crimes, although there was absolutely no proof of that. On the 4th of September 2013, the court filled with onlookers and Bulelani Mabai stood to receive his sentence. In an hour-long judgment, Judge Nolutando Konya handed down 25 life sentences to Mabai. The judge said, quote, Mr. Mabai, you are definitely not a person that society needs. Between 2007 and 2012, the community of Toleni lived in fear because there was a predator living among them. It's not clear how you were able to escape capture for such a long time. His modus operandi involved stalking his targets, who were mostly vulnerable. It mattered not how young the victim was. No one was spared. End quote. As part of her judgment, the judge included evidence from the post-mortem about the severity of violence involved in the crimes. She said, quote, The common trend that runs through these wounds shows the use of violent force. He would kill more than one victim in one house. I can't begin to imagine what was going through the minds of his victims while he was killing others. End quote. She concluded with, quote, The accused does not appear to appreciate the enormity of his actions. He appears to lack insight into the seriousness of his actions. In fact, 
the accused by his own admission, stated that had he not been caught, he would have continued killing. It becomes doubtful, therefore, that there is any chance of rehabilitation. End quote. The sentences were well received by the Tulani community, but despite the man who had haunted their nights now being locked away, residents still lived with an element of fear. This is because many Tulani residents believed that Bulalani did not act alone. When he was giving evidence in court, Bulalani often used the word we instead of me when describing the murders. Now, this could have been a matter of a translation error, but even Captain Hanisa, who was a fluent Isikosa speaker, also picked this up. Tolani residents had always believed that more than one perpetrator had been responsible for the murders, and in addition to this, there's that matter I asked you to keep in mind earlier in the episode. Remember those murders I said you should remember? The ones that occurred in Tolani in 2009 and were so eerily similar to Bulalani Mabai's crimes, where the offender was arrested and convicted in 2012? Those murders. Well, you may be interested to know that the offender in that case was one Mwalaseli Mabai, and the surname is no coincidence. He is related to Bulalani, although the exact relation has never been clarified. And of course, there was Bulalani's brother, Siabonga, who was also convicted of murder. He actually passed away shortly after Bulalani was arrested. I don't know the details of Siabonga's crimes, but I can't look past the fact that two men from the same family were committing murders at the same time, in the same place, in exactly the same way. I just don't think that's a coincidence. I don't know whether police ever looked into this connection, but Bulalani made the mistake that got him caught very soon after Mwalaseli was taken into custody. I can't help but wonder if the reason that the last scene seemed so much more out of control than the others is because it was the first time Bulalani was acting alone. But then, no one else's DNA was ever found at those scenes and there was seemingly no physical evidence of two perpetrators. So maybe it really is just one big coincidence, if you believe in those kinds of things. In the years that followed Mabai's conviction, Tsoleni slowly started to heal its wounds. But the scars of that bloody time were still clearly visible. Walking through the village, most of the houses are brightly painted and well cared for. But interspersed here and there, homes stand empty, unoccupied, crumbling, in the process of being reclaimed by the land. These are the homes of the 19 people who lost their lives in this village. Their homes are considered places never to be entered again, and they stand as a constant reminder of what was lost.
In an attempt to make up for the lack of action when it mattered, local authorities erected large lights in Toleni so that the nights were no longer quite as dark and terrifying. But once those lights started to malfunction, most were never fixed. And now the lit areas are spotty at best. A satellite police station was also set up in the area to provide residents with better access to police services. A few years later, the service was removed. Residents were told it was temporary, but the satellite station never returned. In 2016, Captain Hanisa, who'd helped to bring Mabai to justice, was dismissed for negligence after 75,000 rand in cash was stolen from a safe in his office. The money had been evidence from a cash-in-transit heist committed in 2011. It's unknown as to why the man still had the money in his office five years later. In 2017, Toleni once again became the scene of horrific murders when two schoolgirls were kidnapped, raped and murdered on two separate occasions. Their families looked for them for weeks on each occasion before discovering their dismembered and decomposed bodies in graves, still in their school uniforms. A local man was once again arrested and convicted for those crimes. Another member of the community. Another deep betrayal. The shelter that residents created to be a safe haven for the women and children of Toleni during Mabai's reign of terror became an official place of safety in the area, and in 2020, during the height of the COVID pandemic, local authorities invested money into the shelter to create a soup kitchen which would feed families in need in the area. Residents said that more than anything, they felt that this might help to shed the village of death moniker that had followed them since 2007. A tombstone had also been erected in the village with the victims' names on it. But it's the empty houses, stark concrete, now empty shells that speak volumes about what happened there. Places that were once buzzing with life, filled with the laughter of small children and the smell of cooking evening meals, are now hollow and echo only with the howl of the wind that Bulalani Mabai once used to mask the screams of his victims. I haven't allowed myself to think or speak much about what the 20 people who lost their lives in the series of murders must have experienced. And I don't want that to come across as me glossing over those experiences. There are some cases where the thought is simply too horrific. And I'd really rather not imagine what an elderly lady or a one-year-old baby must have thought when they stared into the empty eyes of Bulalani Mabai for the last time. Rather, I'd like to think about the last time those families gathered together, about grandmothers kissing the perfect foreheads of their grandchildren as they put them to bed, about young women cuddling up into the safety and warmth of their beds, in their homes, in the village they loved, 
surrounded by neighbours they cared for and who cared for them. All but one. I simply do not have the capacity to think about what happened after that. And I cannot even fathom how the people of Tuleni had to live through that and witness it time after time and the deep scars that must have been left on each and every single one of them. No finish my ekiso. No lundi monakali. Nsediwa mafika. Zitle mafika. Lazola mafika. No kwezi no gaya. Sipungolo no gaya. No nleba nguena. No zuko klazo. Endinkayo mbidiani. Zimem Tlazo Non Poliso Gomba Siamtanda Gombo Sinazo Mbeki Ongama Mbeki Kazimla Mbeki Nomandla Munielwa Lucanio Munielwa Liema Munielwa Nompumzilo Lubambo and Tobeka Mberawa. Rest gently. If you'd like to hear more victim-focused true crime content, please subscribe to True Crime South Africa on Spotify or the platform you're using to listen right now. If you're looking for something still related to real-life stories, but often with a more positive slant, you can check out my new podcast series, I Live Through This. You can follow both podcasts on social media. We're on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. I'll be back next week with another episode. Until then, thank you for your support, and I'll chat to you soon. <laughs>